Hello, thank you for visiting the podcast of the Vineyard Church in Campbellsville, Kentucky. If you haven't already, feel free to visit our audio archive at vineyardcampbellsville.org or subscribe to our podcast on iTunes. And now here is this week's message brought to you by Senior Pastor Adam Russell. Hey, good morning, everybody. Hey, welcome to the Vineyard. Glad you're here. Everybody happy? Did you enjoy your extra hour of sleep this morning? Woohoo! Feeling good. Anybody who's late for the second service, we kick them out. That's what we do. All right, hey, I tell you what, we're just going to get right into it. This is our last installment in our Knowing Jesus series from the book of 1 John. And if you want to go ahead and open up your Bibles to 1 John chapter 5, we're going to look at 12 verses this morning. We're going to look at the very first 12 verses this morning out of 1 John chapter 5. And it's it's an absolutely loaded passage. Um, I was telling the guys this morning in prayer time when we were just hanging out before the service, I was telling them that if you had only these 12 verses, if you didn't have the rest of the Bible, if you only had these 12 verses, you could live a successful Christian life. Something I was reflecting on this week. Uh, This is a wonderful passage, and we're not even going to begin to mine the depths of it. We're just going to grab what we can and move on. But if this was all you had, you could live a successful Christian life. And um, that's pretty unbelievable, so why don't we jump right into it. We'll go ahead and put those verses up. Here it is. Starting with verse 1, the apostle writes this, Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has become a child of God. And this is like essential Christianity right here. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has become a child of God. And everyone who loves the Father loves his children too. It's that theme we keep coming back to in 1 John. You can't love God without loving the others. And we know we love God's children if we love God and obey his commandments. So he just does a flip-flop there. Loving God means keeping his commandments. And his commandments are not burdensome. You could just kind of sit with that for a week or two, couldn't you? They're not burdensome. For every child of God defeats this evil world. And we we achieve this victory through our faith. And who can win this battle against the world? Only those who believe that Jesus is the Son of God. And Jesus Christ was revealed as God's Son by His baptism in water... And by shedding his blood on the cross, not by water only, but by water and by blood. And the spirit who is truth confirms it, confirms it with his testimony. So we have these three witnesses, the spirit, capital S, the spirit, the water and the blood, and all three agree. Since we believe human testimony, surely we can believe the greater testimony that comes from God. And God has testified about his son. All who believe in the Son know in their hearts that this testimony is true. Those who don't believe this are actually calling God a liar because they don't believe what God has testified about His Son. And this is what God has testified. He has given us eternal life, and this life is in His Son. Whoever has the Son has life, and whoever does not have God's Son does not have life. There it is, people. It's wonderful. It's wonderful. Here's what I want to do. There's a bunch of different ways that we could divide this passage this morning. 
But here's how I want to divide it. I want to talk to you this morning about the benefits. I want to talk to you about this, this morning about the benefits of knowing the Son. Or to put it in John language, I want to talk to you about the benefits of believing Jesus is the Christ. And there are three benefits. We'll go ahead and just outline those right up front. John shares with us that there are three benefits to believing that Jesus is the Christ. The first benefit is that we are children of God. Look at verse 1. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has become a child of God. The first benefit of believing is that we are children of God. The second benefit of believing is victory. John says that we overcome or we defeat this evil world. And the third benefit of believing this morning is all the way down there at the bottom. It's verse 11, and it is eternal life. Eternal life. See, God is not withholding any of the good stuff. This is kind of what the apostle is saying to us this morning. For everybody who believes in Jesus, there's a place at the table for you. And for everybody who believes in Jesus, there is victory that, that God has ordained you to win. And for everybody who believes in Jesus, God is handing out eternal life. But before we jump ahead, we probably need to spend at least a few minutes chatting about what it means to believe that Jesus is the Christ. Now, most of us have grown up in church, and uh, maybe we have a handle on that. But my guess is that there are some people here who don't have a handle on what it means to believe that Jesus is the Christ. Well, the first thing I want to say about this uh, is this. That the apostle is actually asking us to believe something very specific about Jesus. Uh, The apostle is not asking us to believe believe in Jesus in some general sense. Uh, He's also not asking us to believe in God in some vague or misty way. Uh, He's actually being rather specific. He's asking us to believe that Jesus is the Christ. Look at verse 1. He says, for everyone who believes, not Jesus in a misty way, not God in a vague sense, not Jesus in a general sense. He's asking us to believe that Jesus is the Christ, which is to say that he's asking us to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, which is a shorthand Jewish way of saying that Jesus is God's coming king who's going to set the whole world straight. Christ means anointed one. It means chosen one. And how many of you remember from some of your reading in the Old Testament when, when a king would get anointed, they would, they would anoint him with oil and it would come all over their head. And then at that point, that was the sort of out, outside external symbol that they had become God's chosen king. This is what the apostle is asking us to believe about Jesus. So the apostle is asking people not just for faith in Jesus as a historical person, You know, sometimes people are willing to concede that Jesus was a historical person. You really can't argue with that. There's documentation. He was a historical person. But the historical Jesus is not just what the apostle is asking for. He's asking for us, for me and you, to begin to believe that Jesus is God's saving king. That God is showing the world kindness through Jesus. He's asking us to believe that the real king of the world has come. And surprisingly enough, it's Jesus, the carpenter from Nazareth. Can I just tell you something right now? Barack Obama is not the king of the world. And neither is anybody who will be elected. None of the world powers are the king of the world. And it doesn't matter how much money Bill Gates has or Warren Buffett assumes. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter how much oil is in the Middle East. It doesn't matter who's 
who's pulling the strings on a world level. None of those things matter. The real king of the world is Jesus. And this is really surprising because he's a poor carpenter from Nazareth that ain't nobody seen for 2,000 years. Now we could probably, and we probably should, spend a moment talking about this word believe. Believe. It's in verse 1. Everyone who believes. By the way, this word believe is one of John's favorite words. It's all over the letter that we've been spending the last six weeks in, but it's all over the, all over the gospel of John as well. Uh, it's the word that's almost always translated believe, but the root word of that word believe is the word for faith. And that sort of makes sense. If you're going to talk about faith, you end up talking about belief. If you talk about belief, you're really talking about some extension of faith. But we have to talk about this because as soon as I begin to talk about faith, especially in a room this size, some of us immediately feel crushed. And the reason that some of us immediately feel crushed is because uh, we're aware of our lives and we're aware of our weaknesses to the point that we know that we're not always people who have faith. Newsflash, I'm your pastor. I sometimes struggle with faith. We have to talk about faith for a little bit. One of the things we have to realize is that a lot of us have done the math in such a way that that we've made faith equivalent to mathematical certainty. Or we're tempted to believe that faith is acting one way when we know another thing is actually true. I know a man who quit wearing his glasses because he was trying to convince himself that he was healed. But that's not really what the New Testament holds out as genuine walking with Jesus biblical faith. A much, much better word than faith or belief, especially for us here today, especially because of the way that many of us feel crushed and for all the ways that the word faith has been abused, a much, much better word is trust. See, God is looking for trust. And that's the essence of Christian faith. Trust is a much better word because it's personal and it's relational. And Christian belief and Christian faith is always, always personal. Not just individual, but personal in the sense between two people and relational. And just so you think that the pastor isn't just switching around the words in the Bible to make difficult texts more palatable, I want to read a couple passages to you. We're going to go through these rather quickly. These are all from John. Let's go through the Gospel of John. John chapter 3, verse 15. Look at what he says. So everyone who believes in him will have eternal life. Who's the in him? It's Jesus. But look at the word believe. What is John asking us to do? To believe in who? In Jesus. Do you see that how the word belief is always connected to, to in some way of being personal and relational? Look at this. John 3.16. Nothing more famous than this. For this is how God loved the world. He gave his only son. So that everyone who believes what? Not just something general. But believes in him. Will not perish and have eternal life. Faith is not just mathematical certainty about things you know aren't true. Biblical faith. Biblical faith is confidence in a person. Biblical faith is confidence in Jesus. Let's look at the next one. 18. There is no judgment against anyone who believes in Him. Let's go to 336, I think. Anyone who believes in God's Son has eternal life. Let's go to 1 John 510. We've already read this. 
And all who believe in the Son of God know in their hearts that this testimony is true. Why have I put all these passages up? I've put all these passages up because I want you to notice that the belief, the faith, or the trust that the apostle is looking for, it's always primarily relational. And this means that faith is more about becoming friends than eliminating all uncertainty. Real New Testament biblical faith is way more about becoming friends with Jesus than it is eliminating all uncertainty. Some of us could just go, right? Come on. It's really good news. This means that faith is more about our heart's connection to God than being able to provide empirical evidence to this or that question. This means that faith, while it is theological and philosophical, it is primarily relational and more closely connected to love than pat answers. Look at the context here in 1 John chapter 5. Let's put the big passage back up. This is amazing. Look at this. The context here. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has become a child of God. Now look at this, this next line. And everyone who loves the Father loves his children too. Look at how the apostle is squishing these concepts together of faith and love. Faith is way more about confidence in a person, way more about becoming somebody who loves God rather than it is in getting empirical certainty to answers that may or may not matter. Does that make sense? Uh, the connection here that, that John is making for us reminds me of something that Paul says. Remember when Paul said this? The only thing that matters is what? Faith expressing itself in what? Love. This means, what this means, uh, and this is great, this means that it isn't smarts and it isn't certainty or philosophical somersaults which curry the kindness and favor of God. It's simple trust. You can be a really dumb person and be blessed by God. That's great news. Mostly for me. So the next question is this. What are we trusting? Here it is, guys. So simple. What are we trusting? One word. Jesus. That's it. At the end of the day, this is what I trust. I trust Jesus. I believe in God's goodness shown to the world in Jesus. That's what I believe. I, I, I actually, I don't even put that much confidence in my theology. I, I don't put that much confidence in my understanding of the scriptures. I think I've got a little understanding and I've got a little theology and some of it might be right and I know some of it's absolutely wrong and that's true for everybody on the planet no matter how smart you are. So at the end of the day, the only thing I have confidence is in Jesus. It isn't my theological certainty that saves me. It's not having the right answers that saves me. It's not praying the right prayer. It's not knowing the right person. It's not getting baptized. It's not taking communion every day. It's not reading your Bible. It's not praying. It's not even being nice. The last thing that saves you is one thing. It's Jesus. It's good news. I have confidence in one thing. That at the end of the day, on my worst day, that Jesus will be kind to me. It is good. I'm feeling it. What are we trusting? We're trusting Jesus. 
We're trusting, that, we're trusting that he is who the scriptures say he is. We're trusting that he's the Christ, that he's the anointed and he's the chosen one. And, it, and, and even though he's the anointed and the chosen one, and even though he's the true king of the world, he's the kindest one. This is the, no, let me tell you the really great news. The really great news is this, that God got killed. I, we got to frame it like this. The great news is this, that God got killed and we killed him. Make no mistake, God didn't kill Jesus, we killed Jesus. He lay dead in a tomb for three days. The Father raised him up, and when the dead guy got up, he went to the very people who killed him and said, Peace be with you. Dang. Let me tell you, let's flip the story around a little bit. Let's say, let's say that you're the innocent woman, or you're the innocent man, and a bunch of rabble-rousers kill you. And you lay three days in a tomb, dead as a stone. And then somehow, some way, by some miracle, your heart starts beating again and your blood starts flowing and the electrons in your brain start firing and you come out of the grave and you take off the bed clothes and you put on some decent clothes. What are you going to do? How many of you have seen the movie Terminator? <laughs> That's what everyone else in the... Everyone else who's ever been alive in history, me and you, that's what we would do. We would go Terminator on everyone. We would go back and we would say, I'm back. <laughs> but God doesn't do that. Here's the deal. God is more innocent than any of us have ever been innocent. On the day that you were born, you were not as innocent as Jesus. And we killed him. We killed him, threw him in a grave. He comes back by the power of God and the first words out of Jesus' mouth are, Peace be with you. That's the good news. That's what I'm trusting in. I'm trusting that he's the world's rightful king. I'm trusting that the one guy who has the power and the right to throw everybody into hell without question isn't going to do it. I'm trusting that his life and death and resurrection mean life over death and resurrection for me. I'm trusting that Jesus is a demonstration in flesh and blood of what God's love is. I'm trusting that what he is for the world is what, he's, is what we've always been waiting for. I'm trusting that he's the one we've always hoped for even when we didn't know what we were hoping for. That's what I'm trusting. It's just simple trust. Here's the thing. Let me just talk to everybody in the room for a second. If you've never trusted Jesus, you can start right now. Like, you don't even have to wait till the end. You can start right now. Really, you know, I'm, we all know how church works. At the end, you know, the pastor says, hey, do you need to trust Jesus? To, you know, yeah. I, by the way, I believe in all that stuff. But I'm saying you can trust Jesus right now. You can start believing that Jesus is God's word spoken to the world. You can believe that he is the word spoken to you. You can believe that God's heart, heart towards you is best summed up in Jesus. That forgiveness and love are the real founding principles of the universe. Why don't you start right there? And if you've believed that, like probably most of us in this room have, well, why don't you keep on believing that? And here's the other thing I want to say. There's nothing more advanced than believing that. When you run into these super Christians who are trying to tell you about this and that and have an angelology and a demonology for every ding-dang thing you've ever heard of, and they're always wanting to build up something that's more complicated and more sophisticated and more spiritually, more spiritually satisfying than, than the, God, uh, the God who was crucified comes back and says, peace be with you, listen and have nothing to do with those people. 
There's nothing more complicated. And in fact, the desire for more, something more complicated will cause you to throw away the bread of life. Stop looking for something more complicated, more sophisticated. Just keep trusting that Jesus is your truest friend. And listen, let me tell you who Jesus is. He's the one who washes his feet, the feet of his feeble disciples. He's the one who heals the sick and kisses lepers and frees people from their demons. You just keep trusting him. Come on. And when you do, something amazing happens. And this is what I wanted to get to. There's three, there's three things that happen when you begin to believe and put your confidence in Jesus. And the first one is you become a child of God. You, you get born into a brand new family. And one of the things I know about people, and I know this because I know it about me, is that the ache of every heart is to belong to a family. You know, this is what family is. Family is the thing you can never get kicked out of. That's why we ache for it. Like no matter how bad you are, you're always your father's son. And no matter how rotten you are, no matter how, how rotten you are, you're always your, 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 you're always your brother to your sisters and your other brothers. You, you, they, even if they want to make you not your brother, you are their brother. Even if they strip you naked and throw you in a well and sell you to slave trailers, you're still their brother. And thank God, right? Thank God for those 11 foolish guys who threw Joseph in a well. You become a child of God. You get to inherit a name with dignity and honor. And you get to be loved from day one and to have a seat at the table. That's the thing about a child. It's the weirdest thing. As a mom or a dad, as soon as that baby's born, it's love from day one. It's done nothing, You're just, but your heart is wide open to it. And so God's kingdom is always a family. God is our father and Jesus is our brother. There's a seat at the table for every single person. And there's a meal that's being served. And it is not insignificant. And, and here's what it means to be a child of God. It means, it means we become the father's... We mean, it means this. It means we become the father's child. And that means something very specific too. It means that we become targets of his love. No one has to convince me to love my children. No one has to convince me to love my children. And can I tell you something about me? I'm an evil father. That's what Jesus says. If you fathers who are evil wouldn't give your kid a stone when he asks for bread. That's what I know about me. Here's what it means to be a child of God. It means that you are a target of the father's love. That you have been, that you are, and you always will be. On your worst day, you're a target of the father's love. Prodigal sons and daughters always received home. Not only that, this is what it means to be a child of God. It means that you and I are His responsibility. This is what it means to be a child of God. It doesn't mean to... Being a child of God doesn't mean acting foolish and acting like a kid for the rest of your life. This is what it really means. It means that my life is up to Him. We have a Father who's looking over our lives, and it means that we can live free of anxiety. How many of you understand that children aren't worried and kids aren't freaked out? When, when kids have a good mom and dad, they're never anxious, even when mom and dad are maybe perhaps a little bit worried about this or that. Uh, here, here's what I've learned about my own life. I grew up, I grew up in a house... And, and I, I've learned that after I've gotten a little bit older, I've learned that my mom and dad had some worries and I never knew them. 
one of the things we need to catch hold of right here and right now is that when you become a child of God, you're his responsibility. And that means that you really can live free of anxiety. If you're a worry person, let me just, let me just frame it this way. To the extent that we're worry people is the extent to which we have not realized that we're a child of God. Being a child of God also means this. It means that we're possessors of his DNA. Children are expressions of their parents' DNA. We're like them. River looks so much like his grandfather. Have you seen those pictures of like Ray Ray when he's 12? It looks exactly like River. It's weird. Seth has, eye, Seth has eyes that look like mine. See, we have the Father's DNA, and the Father's DNA is this. Love, joy, peace, patience. Those are ours. Jesus said this. He said, forgive or you won't be forgiven. He also said, blessed are the peacemakers, because they'll be called sons of God. You know why he said that? He said those things because forgiveness and peace are what the Father is like. You can be a forgiving person. I can be a peace-filled person because my heavenly father is a forgiver and he's full of peace. It's my DNA. See, trusting Jesus infuses our lives with a brand new DNA. Paul calls it grace. All the apostles have different language for it. Now look at verse 3. This is one that everybody got caught up on while we were reading it. Loving God means keeping his commandments and his commandments are not burdensome. Wow. Wow. Let me just define it for you this way. The spiritual life is growing and trusting Jesus until the commandments of God become second nature and not burdensome. To the extent that commands of God are burdensome is the extent to which we still have room to grow in our awareness that we're children of God. That we've been fathered with a new DNA. That we have new possibilities alive and well within us. Does it mean that it will always be easy? Heck no. Heck no. But it does mean this, that the more you trust Jesus, that the more you believe that he's the world's rightful king, that the more you believe that he's the Christ, that he's the saving one, that he's setting everything to right, that he's the forgiver, that he's got confidence in you, the more you believe that, the more that the commands of God become burdenless. And what about when they're not? What about when they're hard? Well, there's good news. The good news is this. Our father is slow to anger and he's rich in love. Hebrews says this, that he disciplines the sons that he loves. That's something we don't talk about in church. (laughs) No, God would never do that to me. Yeah, yeah, he probably would. (laughs) He will train us. He will train us. How many of you know when you go to the gym, you you got to curl 10 pounds before you can curl 25 pounds? And the good news is, even when, even when the commandments of God are burdensome, he's a forgiver. The second thing that's ours is victory. This is the one thing that John adds that's new in the passage. Verse 4, for every child of God defeats this evil world. Think about that for a minute. Every child of God defeats this evil world. You were made for victory. You were made to win. And, and John is saying this evil world, and we might ask ourselves, well, what is this evil world? Uh, is it sin? Well, well yes, of course. Uh, is it evil? Uh, absolutely. 
But I think there's something particular that he has in mind, and it's a stream of thought that's really clear in the Gospel of John. So we're going to go through a couple more passages really quick. Can we put up John 12, 31? <laughs> Words of Jesus, the time of judging, for the time of judging this world has come. Same word there, this world. When Satan, the ruler of this world, will be cast out. 1430. I don't have much more time to talk to you, some of his disciples. Because the ruler of this world approaches and he ain't got no power over me. And my favorite one, 1633. I have told you all this so that, so that you may have peace in me. Peace is relational again. Here on earth you will have many trials and sorrows, but take heart. Why? Because I have overcome the world. See, all of these declarations are right before Jesus' own trial and crucifixion. And this is when Jesus is in Pilate's court talking about the truth. You guys remember that little thing? Pilate says, what is the truth? It's an amazing moment. The truth stands before him and Pilate says, what is the truth? It's amazing. See... See, this is right before Jesus' own crucifixion. And it's, and it's setting us up for the moment that Jesus is tangling with Pilate. And when one king can't see who the other real king is, and the priest would rather have a murderer than Melchizedek. What, what is the evil world? Here's what the evil world is. It's when, it's when the rulers of this world are encountered by the, the real ruler of the whole world and can't see it. And it's when the priests would ha- rather have a murderer named Barabbas than the king of, called Melchizedek. That'd be Jesus, by the way. The prince of Salem. That's, that is the essence of this evil world. It's the world that is... It's, it's the world that is, has a sinful tendency. It's the, it's the sinful tendency of politics and religion to converge and to try and kill the work of God. It's that thing that's at work in the universe which opposes goodness for the sake of power. How many of you have ever encountered that? If you haven't, you will. Just because you want to do something good doesn't mean that the powers of the age that rule will let you do something good. That is this evil world. And everybody in this room has most likely experienced it. If you haven't, you will. And it forces us to ask questions like this. Who in their right mind would want to kill Jesus? Have you ever thought about that? Like if Jesus shows up, if Jesus shows up preaching the gospel of peace and harmony, then why in the world did he get killed? That's another question. But the thing for us right now is this. That for those who believe something amazing happens, we become overcomers. You were made to overcome. And you were made to overcome one thing in particular, this evil world. You were made to win. You were made for victory. Uh, uh, The scriptures say that greater is in you than than he is in the world. See, you you can be encouraged. And you need to know that the victory of Jesus, this is the thing that, that I have to grab a hold of right now anyway, is that the victory of Jesus doesn't always look like victory. The victory that the apostles always hold out is Jesus on the cross. 
See, you and I talk about victory in all kinds of ways. The apostles always talk about victory in one way, and it's Jesus on the cross. Uh, which is to say this. Uh, trusting Jesus might get you killed. Both metaphorically and literally. Uh, and by the way, history affirms both. Look at verse 6 and 7. Can we put our big passage back up this morning? 6 and 7. And Jesus Christ was revealed as God's son by his baptism in water and by his shedding and by shedding his blood on the cross. Not by water only, but by water and by blood. See, the son was revealed by water and by blood. By water meaning his baptism. You guys remember that moment? Jesus goes down and the father speaks over him. This is my son in whom I am well pleased. Right? He's revealed in water. But he's also revealed as the Son of God by blood, which is blood on the cross. And, and by the way, that looks like defeat. And both of these, both of these moments are what it looks like to be the Son of God. Uh, on one hand, humbly accepting baptism, even though he didn't need it. What, what does real victory look like in the world? Like we, we, we all have formulas for what victory looks like. But victory in God's kingdom looks totally different. One of the main ways that the sons and daughters of God are revealed are things like this. Just like Jesus got revealed. In baptism. To say it another way. To say it another way. When you accept things, when, when you, accept things you, you didn't even need to, 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 to embrace people that you love. That's what baptism was for Jesus. He didn't need, how many of you understand, he didn't need to have his sins washed away. But he so loves you and I, he gets in the water. And by accepting crucifixion, even though he didn't deserve it. See, sometimes overcoming looks like death. Uh, maybe you trusted Jesus and you got led into waters you didn't think you needed or hung up on a tree you'd rather have avoided. And maybe you trusted Jesus and everyone thinks your life is a failure. Hell, maybe you think you're a failure. How many of you have ever had those thoughts? Here's some good news for you this morning. Resurrection is reserved for the dead. Victory is for the trusting. And as sure as the sun will rise, the sons and daughters of God will defeat all that oppose His gentle kingdom. The kingdom of heaven is a gentle kingdom. And we will win a victory not by picketing and not by shooting and not by shouting or rioting, but by yielding, submitting, and looking foolish. The cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but it's the power of God for those who are being saved. Victory. And then finally, finally by believing we lay hold of eternal life. If you have the Son, you have eternal life. And you don't have it later, you have it now. By simple trust. I love what Brian said a couple weeks ago about eternal life. This is what Brian said. He said, eternal life is not principally unending days, but rather another kind of life. I'm going to say that again because this is really important. When Jesus talks about eternal life, he is not principally talking about unending days, but rather a completely different kind of life. I love how N.T. Wright translates eternal life. When he translates it, he calls it life of the age to come. So we might say it like this. For everybody who believes, everybody who trusts, we get to become partakers of the life of the age to come now. 
life of the age to come where joy and peace and love are abundant. Imagine life without anxiety. Imagine life without being angry. Imagine life where all of your decisions aren't based upon lust and the need to gain. See, here's the thing. We have access to that right now. We can grow into that age to come life right now. It's the kind of life that Jesus came to give. And you don't have to die to grow hold of it now, to grab a hold of it now. You can let go of addiction. And you can let go of bitterness. And you can, and you can grab hold of the life of the age to come because it's actually resident within us. But know this. And you do need to know this. If you become a harbinger of the life of the age to come, if you become filled with eternity, if you become filled with love and joy and peace and patience, you will become the strangest collision. You'll lay hold of of the life you always wanted, but it might not mean money, and it probably won't mean fame, and it probably won't mean power. But here's the good news. You'll get all the things that you hope to secure with money, fame, and power. you lay hold of that age to come you're going to get the good stuff it might not mean money fame or power who cares because the good news is this you can end up with all the things you were hoping to secure with money fame and power and what are we hoping to secure peace security openness love place at the table place in god's arms a few friends roast chicken (laughs) you laugh but until you've had one that's just right (laughs) and here's the really strange news this is the reason it's a collision you can lay hold of the life of the age to come you can get the things that you were hoping to secure by other means by the way money fame and power those are all ways of trying to attain kingdom realities with uh, and avoid god That's the reason they're idolatry. And here's the really weird thing. You can can lay hold of the life of the age to come. You can grab those things. and, And in the process of doing that, the world will look to kill you. This is why it's a weird collision. Jesus came healing and making wine and the religious elite and the politically powerful killed him. Eternal life, eternal life right here might mean a whole lot of trouble. How many? When was the last time you had trouble because of Jesus? It's actually a decent question. And here's the reason it's a decent question. Because Jesus says, hey, on account of me, you guys are going to get in trouble. And, and by the way, he didn't mean, uh, on account of me, you guys get to go out and be jerks. He just meant, on account of me, on account of this life to come, on account of the fact that you could have everything that money, fame, and power tries to secure by avoiding God, you could have it by by embracing God, uh, you're going to get trouble. And some of us in the room might be thinking, well, why in the world are you bringing this up, Adam? Well, I'm bringing it up for a couple reasons. Number one, I want to tell you the truth. (laughs) I just want to tell you the truth. And then secondly... And this is probably the main reason. The second reason is this. It's because I've glimpsed a kingdom and I've glimpsed a king who are entirely worth all the trouble. I've I've seen it. I've seen it. 
And for whatever, for whatever trouble God's kingdom brings into our life and for whatever trouble the power of the age to come can bring into our life because it's always a confrontation to the powers of this current age, to the extent that that happens, I'm just here to tell you it's entirely worth it because it's no trouble at all when compared to living a kind of life that is chasing down money, fame, and power when it's the kind of life that's trying to secure kingdom realities and avoid God. No trouble at all. Good news. Good news this morning. If you put your trust in Jesus, you become a child of God. If you trust in Jesus, you become an overcomer. And if you trust in Jesus, you get the life of the age to come early. Depending on how old you are, way early. And it can happen now. It can happen now. Amen? Thank you again for stopping by the podcast at the Vineyard Church in Campbellsville, Kentucky. If you'd like to keep up with what's happening here at the Vineyard, you can follow us on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. Until next time, peace to you.